All right, we are in the New Testament, and um, the section we're in is called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, who do we think is one of the primary audiences that Matthew was writing for? Jews. That's right, the Jews. Um, and so he emphasizes the kingdom of God quite a bit. Um, and he has, he has several stories about Gentiles in, in the book to try to help uh, Jews, I guess, improve their attitude. <laughs> that was a big problem in the early church. This is our outline that we've been looking at and we're covering we're right toward the end of a section that the Zondervan author called Jesus' Withdrawals from Galilee. And then after we finish that, we'll go on to his last ministry in Galilee, then his ministry in Judea and Perea, which was east of the Jordan River. And then finally we'll begin uh, the Passion Week, uh, the last week of, of his life. Alright, so um, chapter 16 begins with the request for a sign. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and tested Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Well, what does that mean about all the signs he's already given them? He's nothing to the Pharisees. Yeah, they weren't from heaven. Remember, remember what they say about the de- casting out demons? Yeah, yeah, done by Beelzebub. Um, so, in verse 4, he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it except what? Jonah. The sign of Jonah. And somewhere else where he explained this more, what, what, what does he mean when he says the sign of Jonah? Well, three days and three nights. Yeah, that he was three days in the fish and then came out alive, which was kind of a foreshadowing of, of Jesus' three days in the, in the grave. Um, so then afterwards, they're, headed, they're in a boat. And in verse 6, what did He warn them about, the disciples? Leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeah. Um, what does leaven represent in the Bible? Sin. Yeah, it represents sin. Um, and of course, not all sins are the same. What's the particular sin of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Hypocrisy. Yeah, that's that'd be the my best guess would be hypocrisy. Um, in fact, I think one of the other gospels may even say it specifically hypocrisy. Um, they're pretending to be loyal to God, but they really don't care anything about God. And they're pretending that they want a sign from him, but they know perfectly well there's nothing he can do that's going to work for them. And of course, the disciples don't quite understand he's talking about leaven. What did they think he was talking about? Bread. Yeah, they forgot to bring food. That that was on their minds. (laughs) Now, in verse 13, where did they go to? 
Yeah, Caesarea Philippi. Now, Capernaum was his base of, of operations. And usually when we think of Caesarea, we think of this Caesarea down here on the coast, which is uh, where the Roman governor was. But Caesarea Philippi is up here in the north. I don't know why he went up there, except my guess is he went up there to try to get away from the crowds. Because that really was not Jewish territory. Um, although Herod, Herod, who ruled over Galilee, was also over that territory. But it's really getting a Gentile, a Gentile area. So, but this is, this is, of course, where one of the greatest events happened in his life. Um, what did he ask them? Yeah, who do people say I am? Of course, people aren't around now. He can just talk to the disciples. And they gave different answers. And then, who do you say I am? What was the answer? The Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. And then he warned his disciples that, what? Don't tell anyone that Jesus is Christ. Don't tell anyone that Jesus is Christ. Now, this is crazy. I mean, Jesus came to be the Messiah. And it's taken three years now, and he finally asked the disciples, and they understand he is the Messiah. Then he tells, says, but don't tell anybody. Why? Well, it might push things faster and it, because people have a different idea. So Jesus has to yeah. Idea. yeah, that's the big problem. What the Jews thought of the, as the Messiah is not what Jesus was. And if... And, the truth of the matter is these disciples still have an awful lot of that wrong conception in their own minds, as we're going to see a little bit later. So if they go around telling everybody Jesus is the Messiah, they're, they're going to be telling the wrong thing. Their view of what He came to be is different than what the truth is. And those other people are going to get the wrong idea, and it's, it's not the direction that Jesus wants people to go. There will come a time when they should tell people, but not until they understand and that's not going to be until when? Yeah, until He's risen from the dead. Then, in verse 21, He began telling them some other piece of information which they had a hard time hearing. What is that? He's going to Jerusalem and He's going to be killed and be raised on the third day. Yeah. I don't think they heard the last part at all, raised on the third day. I don't think they heard that at all. They couldn't even imagine the Messiah being killed. And so, who decided to try to help him out on this? Well, Peter's going to correct. Yeah, Peter rebuked him. Yeah, no, I was kind of, you know, buck up, you know, cheer up. This is not as bad as you think. <laughs> um, and then, I think as a result of that, in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. <clears throat> so not only is Jesus going to die, but all of his followers must die to themselves. 
All right. Um, now we come to the pinnacle of his preaching ministry, the Transfiguration. Um, who did he take with him for this? John and Peter. Yeah, Peter, James, and John. Yeah, and they went on a high mountain. He doesn't say which one. And what happened to Jesus? He went up in the air. No, no, that you know. Oh, you're thinking of, you're thinking of the ascension. That comes John, later. Yeah. John and Peter. The ascension was done in front of all, of all the apostles. But the, this is the transfiguration. And what happened to him in the transfiguration? Turned bright white. That's right. Very, very bright. As white as light, it says. And two men appeared with him. Moses and Elijah. Yeah, Moses and Elijah. And a voice spoke out from the cloud. And what did the voice say? This is my beloved son, whom I well please hear him. That's right. That's right. Um, when before did we have a voice coming from heaven? When Jesus was baptized. That's right. When he was baptized. So this is the second time now. And both times the voice says much the same thing. The first time at his baptism, this is my beloved son. God was declaring that he has lived his first 30 years perfectly. Now, three years later, because this is approximately six months from the crucifixion, three years later, the voice again says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he said, listen to him. And of course, Peter needed to learn that lesson rather than listening to Moses and Elijah. So, um, In verse 9, when they were coming down from the mountain, what did Jesus command them to do? Do not understand remember the five loaves, the five thousand, okay. the you took up? Yeah, no, sorry, we're in chapter 17 now. 17. Yeah. Verse 16. Verse 9. Verse 9. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Yes. So very similar to when He told them, don't tell anyone He's the Christ. Don't tell anyone what they just saw. And I assume it's the same reason. Again, they, they didn't understand what they'd seen. They're not going to get it right when they tell others about it. Then they had a question in verse 10. What was the question? About Elijah that must come first. Yeah, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Where did the scribes get that from? The Old Testament. Malachi. Yep, Malachi. The last book in the Old Testament. And, um, Almost the last one. It was it was very close to the very end of the book. Yes, I heard it was Malachi, the Italian prophet. Malachi instead of Malachi. Someone was pulling your leg. I've oh, never heard anyone pronounce it like that. Go figure. <laughs> no, everyone pronounces it Malachi. Um, yeah, I think someone was telling a joke when they said that. Um, so. Um, Jesus finally explained to them and they figured out who was that Elijah that was being prophesied. Yeah, that was John the Baptist. Um, now, as soon as they got down from the, from the mountain, there was a big crowd and there's a problem. What's the problem? Not enough food. Yeah, Matthew? The apostles couldn't cast out this demon. Yeah, Father brought his, his son to get them to cast a demon out and 
Well, were the apostles able to cast out demons? Yeah, he'd given them that power, but they couldn't cast this one out. And so the poor father, I mean, he's just very distraught. And um, so Jesus, of course, cast the demon out, but then the disciples wanted to know, well, why couldn't we do it? And what's the answer? Don't have enough faith. Yeah, how much faith do they need? Yeah, not very much, in other words. <laughs> just, just If you just had faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, we need to understand something here. Jesus is not telling us, hey, whatever you decide you want to do is going to happen. He is not saying that. And I know that because the Apostle Paul asked the Lord three times to remove a thorn from his flesh, and the Lord said what? My grace is sufficient. Yeah, my grace is sufficient. He didn't give it to him. There are, unfortunately, a lot of people who take this one verse. And that's all they know about the whole Bible, just about. And, and you know, no matter what, you know, you just you just ask for it, and and God will give it to you. And uh, that's not what Jesus was saying. What we need to understand is, if we're doing God's will, and if we're doing His work, and if there is a barrier in the way of accomplishing that work, faith will remove that barrier because God is the one we have the faith in. Um, He's not promising you that you'll never get laid off from your job. He's not promising you that that you'll never get sick. What He's promising you is the power of all the universe behind the work of of doing the work of the kingdom. 1926, with men, this is impossible, but with God, things are impossible. Right. That's right. And, And... But we have to understand, although all things are possible with God, it doesn't mean that He's going to do what I want. He's going to do what is good for the progress of the kingdom. And it's up to me to get my, get my will adjusted to that. Um, let me see what else I wanted to bring out of this chapter. Um, oh, well, in verse 22, again, He... He told them what was going to happen. Yeah, again, he's going to be delivered in the hands of men and he's going to get killed. Uh, Jesus is telling these guys this a number of times, but they just weren't prepared for it. And then finally in the, in the chapter, we have a story about a tax. It doesn't say what the tax is for, but you have to know that to understand the story. What was the tax for? It was a temple tax. Yeah, it was a temple tax. And it was a voluntary tax. The Jews weren't in a position to be able to force all Jews to pay this tax. So that's why I think the question came up, does your teacher, does he pay this tax? And what was Peter's answer? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then he came in the house and Jesus did, he didn't tell Jesus a thing about it and Jesus brought it up immediately. <laughs> he, of course, he knows what's going on. And, and Jesus wanted him to understand something special about him. He doesn't know that tax. And why is that? He's the son of the king and it's the tax for the king. Um, but did Jesus pay it anyway? Well, <laughs> yeah, he did pay it anyway. 
Um, he just because because he realized that this is this would cause people to stumble if they the, the, the you know the ordinary Jews would not understand what the principle is. So he went out and paid it, even though, as he explained to Peter, he he did not have to. Like allowing John the Baptist to baptize him. Well, in one sense, his whole life was acting this out. <laughs> he was doing an awful lot of things that, that by rights he didn't have to do. Um, now, the next chapter is greatness in the kingdom. Um, because in verse 1, what did the disciples ask Him? Who is greatest? Yeah, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you, you see, this is why Jesus doesn't want them telling people He's the Messiah. Because... Their idea is he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. With an earthly kingdom, you have rank. You have you know the guy who's at the, you know right next to the king. You know in in our government that would be the secretary of state, and then you have the next down. You know you have your cabinet, and then underneath that you got other people. Well, I mean the design these these twelve they knew that they were going to be in the cabinet. But who's going to be the secretary of state? <laughs> who's the greatest? And um, what was the answer? The least. <laughs> the least, yeah. He takes a child, brings him in. Unless you become like this child, you can't even get in the kingdom of heaven. And then the whole chapter is on this topic. Um, in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'll be better for what? Yeah. Um, he, he's just trying to emphasize the extreme danger and, and, and the anger God's going to have if we cause one of these little ones to stumble. Again, when you think of rank, the person who's at the top kind of despises the person at the bottom. And Jesus is saying, no, you must honor that person at the bottom. If you receive the child in my name, you're receiving me. If you cause a child to stumble, you're offending me. And so, that's the context of the rest of the chapter. What's our attitude toward the people that we consider to be the little ones? And he says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. We need to be very, very careful. We saw just a few verses ago that Jesus didn't want to cause anyone to stumble, so He paid a tax that He didn't owe. Now, now He's telling us you've got to be aware of, of these weak ones. Um, in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Why? Their angels in heaven continually see the face of His Father. Um, they seem like they're such low rank, but God has appointed them angels that have ready access right to His presence. That's how much God thinks of these little ones. Then He tells another story in verse 12. Sheep. And what is the, what is the little one represented in this parable? He's represented as one of the hundred sheep that wanders off. The 99 don't want her, the one does. And so what does the shepherd do? Goes after the one's lost, yes. So it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. 
So then he says in verse 15, if your brother sins, what should you do? Yeah. What's the goal? Yeah. This is a, this is simply an application of the of the sheep. The one sheep goes, the shepherd goes after it. Your brother sins, you go after him. And so you go after him by talking with him in private. If he doesn't listen to you, what do you do then? Right. So you're slowly increasing the pressure trying to get this man to repent because this is terrible what, what's happened. But if he doesn't listen to them, then what do you do? Take the church. If he doesn't tell, listen to the church, then what? Yeah, let him beat you as a Gentile or a tax collector. The Jews wouldn't eat with with these Gentiles or tax collectors. They they did not. They did not have any social relations with those with those two classes. Um, So then, Peter has another question. It's on the same topic. What's his question in verse 21? And, and Peter suggests a very large number. What's his number? Seven. Seven times, yeah. <laughs> and Jesus' answer is what? Yeah, up to 70 times seven. <laughs> um, so then he tells a story. And this is a great story. Um, there, there's a guy that there, there's a, a, a man who has some has a bunch of people that owe him money. One of the guys that owes him money owes him how much money? Ten thousand talents. Ten thousand talents. Yeah. Um, a talent what was a weight? It weighed seventy five pounds, and these are probably silver talents. So this is seventy five pounds of silver. It, it was an enormous amount. Uh, you know, an ordinary laboring man would never—he he would never have any chance at seeing one talent. Um, I, to me, I, I would—I think we could compare it to like to a million dollars. So the ten thousand talents would be ten thousand times a million dollars. What he owes, and Jesus is very deliberately telling this story in a way that you—you you know, there's no way. Anybody could ever pay this back. But the guy said, and, and so he's going to get sold as a slave and his wife and his children too, which is all the guy can get out of. But the slave in verse 26 says, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. We, think, we hear that and we think, this is ridiculous. But he asked and the Lord just forgave him the debt. Verse 26, just forgave him the debt. But then... Story's not over. What does the guy do that just got forgiven the ten thousand talents? He grabs the guy that owes him hundred Yeah, he grabs the guy that owes him hundred denarii. Now, denarius was was a coin that would be paid for one day's work. So this is not an inconsequential amount. This is this would be the amount that an ordinary worker would get paid for maybe three months of work. You know, it's it's uh, it is a lot more than ten dollars, but it's a lot less than a million dollars. <laughs> What's the guy say to him? Patience. Patience. The same thing. He says the exact same words. That's the whole point. He says the exact same words the first guy had said to, to the guy he owed the ten thousand dollars to. Only the end result is different. What's the guy? What, what's the creditor do in this case? Throw him in jail. Throw him in jail. Yeah. And the, and the lesson Jesus wants us to get is what? 
Yeah, Matthew? Yeah, we have been forgiven so much. If any of us refuse to forgive, we're simply being blind to what God has done for us. All right, so chapter 19, we have a couple of different stories. A question about divorce and then a rich young ruler. Um, now, we have a geographical note here. In verse 1, where did he go to? Beyond the Jordan. Yeah, the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, which on this map is called Perea. He, he, he was in somewhere in this area here. He's left Galilee. I, I don't think he's going to go back to Galilee from this point forward. He's just waiting for the Passover. And, and, but he, he's doing you know, teaching and all that. So the, some Pharisees came, and what was their question? Yeah, which was a big. It was a hot question among the Jews. You know, what are the because the, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter twenty-four, it said, if a man finds something unseemly in his wife and he writes her to the divorce, and it goes on like that. That's that's only mentioned in the law about the divorce, and they want to know well, what is that unseemly thing. And they had different views on it. And Jesus, Jesus, though he didn't he didn't go to Deuteronomy twenty-four. Where did he go to to answer the question? Yeah, Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So then they said, well, hey, what, that, that doesn't agree with Moses. And so he says, well, Moses permitted you. But what I say is, verse, 20, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Very similar to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he discussed the same thing back then. But this time the disciples had a chance to ask and they were kind of shocked that it was going to be so strict. You know, said, Maybe it's better not even to get married. <laughs> um, they got the point, certainly. Then um, we've got a little short story about children coming and the disciples who didn't want them to. Jesus did. And then we've got the rich young ruler. And, and verse 16, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What good thing. The emphasis on good. And so, Jesus says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He doesn't explain that, but I think if you go into the book of Romans, you'll understand what he's talking about there. Um, but finally, the guy said in verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And what did Jesus say? all your possessions to the poor. Yeah. Give everything you have to the poor and come follow me. And of course the guy didn't do it and Jesus had to explain that it's very, very difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's that gets us up to the passage that Eric was referring to in verse 26. With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The issue of good... Um, he's thinking that we can do enough good to get into heaven. And Paul in the book of Romans is saying, nobody can do that. The only way you're going to get into heaven is by grace. That's what, and, and about half the book of Romans is on that subject. Yeah, good question. 
So then Peter has a question. Hey, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And you know, Jesus did not rebuke him. Jesus did not say, what kind of attitude is that? <laughs> Jesus said, yes, you will have rewards. In verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But, he says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Now that's a strange one that he's going to explain in the next chapter. The laborers in the vineyard. Because in this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, there were first and there were last. The first were those who were hired first, very beginning of the day, and it seems to me they were working a 12-hour day here. So the first ones were hired about 6 in the morning. And what were they going to get paid for the day? Yeah, a denarius, that's right. And then he kept this guy kept going out and finding more people as the day went on. Finally, it's the 11th hour, there's only one hour left. He finds some others standing around and he asks them, why have you been standing around all day long? And they say, well, because no one hired us. So he said, well, you go there and work too. So then when it came time to, to pay, he pays them from the ones that started last back to the ones that started first. How much does he pay the last people? He pays wages. He wages. Then the first people come and, and they're getting all excited because, wow, one hour's work and they get a whole day's wage. Well, imagine what we get for 12 hours' work and what they get? A day's wage. A day's wage. And so that's how it explains verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last. Now, let me suggest, I, I'm not convinced that this that this parable is saying that there's that everybody in in the day of judgment gets the same reward. I'm not saying they don't. I just don't know. I don't think that's what the point is here. The point here is that in the kingdom, God rewards us not based on how much work we do, but on how much we do based on what our opportunities were. If, if, if these people were, weren't hired till the very last, they did what they could with what they had. They only had opportunity to work an hour. They worked an hour. If they were hired at the very beginning, they had an opportunity to work 12 hours and they worked the 12 hours. In both cases, God holds people accountable for what they were, uh, they were able to do, what, what their opportunities were. Now that, that, that has very broad kind of uh, implications because... Not only does God give different amounts of people different amounts of time, some people don't hear the gospel till they're old, some people grew up with the gospel, but God gives people different abilities, different opportunities. I mean, everything about us is different. There is just there is absolutely no way that any one of us can look at someone else and say, you know, I think in the judgment day you're going to get this and I'll get that. There is just no way we can do that. And, and so Peter, Jesus wanted Peter to, to get, get over that idea that just because he, he was one of the first ones to get in, in on the game meant that he was going to get the biggest reward. That's not, that's not God's plan. Um, now, yes? I've used this again quite a bit at work. Not necessarily exactly like that, but like the concept when, when I talk with people because I have people that get paid different amounts. And, and I just said, this is, not, this is what you and I are doing. It doesn't matter what anybody else gets. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's not the point of this parable. <laughs> yeah. It's very difficult when you have a lot of employees for there not to get jealousy among them. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Alright, in verse 18, Jesus again predicts what? His death coming up. Yeah. So this is at least the third time now since Peter made the, the great confession. Then in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And who were the sons of Zebedee? James, James and John. Which are there, they're in the inner circle, the top three. She comes in and what does she want? Two sons on either side of Jesus. Yeah, top position. You know, one was going to be Secretary of State, the other going to be Secretary of Defense. These are the force were later called Sons of Thunder, weren't Yes, they were also called Sons of Thunder. Yeah. Yeah. One of these guys was the first to be martyred as a as a Christian, as a, not as a Christian, but as an apostle. That was James. The other one was probably the the last of all the apostles to die, and that was John, who wrote the book of Revelation. But he was a lot different person by then. <laughs> so Jesus again, I mean, over and over, the same subject coming up: greatness. They keep coming at it from different angles, and they're all thinking in worldly terms, and so. Um, he explains, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over people. They're great men exercise authority. I mean, the whole point of being high up with a Gentile is so I, I can tell the people, people where to get off and they have to serve me and all this. And it's not going to be that way among Jesus' servants. If you want to be great, what do you have to be? A servant. That's right. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And who's the chief example of that? Jesus, Jesus is. Yeah. yeah. Well, his whole life, his whole life was an example of that. Then um, we're getting close to the Passover, and so he travels from beyond the Jordan across to Jericho, and there's a road from Jericho up through Bethany and to Jerusalem. So in um, at the end of, of the chapter here, they're, they're, they're leaving Jericho and two guys came up to him and what was their problem? Yeah. Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when they say Son of David, what do they mean? Messiah. He's the Messiah, yes. Um, Jesus had come because He was the Son of David, but the people wouldn't have Him because He wasn't the kind of Son of David they wanted. And that's what Matthew, of course, is leading up to. Um, all right, then chapter twenty-one, we come up, we come to the triumphal entry when they had approached Jerusalem and come to the Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, and I've got a, a map here. You get Jerusalem's on the left side here. The Mount of Olives, you can see this kind of a relief map. There's the Mount of Olives. And this road from Jericho comes past Bethany and then it kind of winds around here and over part of the Mount of Olives. So you cannot see Jerusalem when you're approaching from the east until you cross a point probably right about here on the map where you cross the, the ridge of the Mount of Olives and you can, you can look down and see the city, you know, the temple here. 
with all the gold on it. Beautiful. But Jesus is going to come in state into this city. And so what did He tell His disciples to go get for Him? A donkey, yes. Um, not quite what you would expect a king to ride on. What, what would you normally expect a king to ride on? A horse. Yeah, a horse or, or riding a chariot being pulled by a horse. Sometimes they had a mule. But a donkey? I mean, a little... I mean. <laughs> but this was predicted in what book of the Old Testament? Um, well, you're right. It's in two places. Isaiah 62 and Zechariah. Zechariah 9 is the one I'm more familiar with because we studied that in the last. Yeah. So, this is called the triumphal entry. This is um, on the. This was on a Sunday. It's where we get Palm Sunday from, which in today's calendar was last Sunday. That's my understanding. I don't keep a lot of track, but... Um, my wife told me today was Easter this morning. <laughs> so that, that means Palm Sunday had to be a week ago. <laughs> um, so then in verse 12, where did Jesus go to? He went to the temple. I've got a, a plan here of the temple. This is Herod's temple. We, in, in this series of, of classes, we've seen Solomon's temple back when we were doing Kings. Then we saw Ezekiel's temple when we did Ezekiel. Which that temple was never built; it was it was a it was symbolic. But this is Herod's temple. Uh, this was the renovated version of the temple that was built um, back in um, uh, the days of the prophets. Um, well, no, it was before Ezra. Um, Zephaniah, yeah. Ha- wasn't it? It was Haggai and it was Zechariah. Those two prophets prophesied at the time when the original of this was built. And then Herod spent about 40 years renovating this and, and really making it very fancy. Now, in this temple, um, the Golden Gate would be the gate you'd come into from the Mount of Olives because um, it faces east. I don't know. I don't think this cleansing the temple was on the same day as the triumphal entry. I think it was actually on the next day, but um, Matthew doesn't give us the details, um, so I'm not sure which where Jesus entered it from. But he might have come right from the Mount of Olives and gone in here. This outer area is called the Court of the Gentiles, and that would have been where they were doing all the buying and the selling. You know, they had their stalls and all that. Um, Perhaps it would have been underneath one of these um, covered porticos, or maybe it was out in the open here, or on this side. Um, I'm sure they wouldn't have you know, done the buying and selling in the holier places in this area where no Gentiles were allowed. Um, but Jesus wasn't going to have them doing it anywhere in the temple. His temple was God's house, His Father's house, and they were turning into a robber's den. Of course, the robber part was because they had a monopoly. They were charging the kind of prices you get if you want to buy a hot dog at a ball game. <laughs> you have the monopoly thing going on. Um, so um, that led, well, actually, that, that led to a question on the next day. Well, I've got to cover a story between. On the way in the, the next morning, he saw a fig tree by the road. And what was the problem with the fig tree? 
to now he fixed. So what did he say to it? Yeah, and what did that symbolize? That's right. It symbolized the nation of Israel. Jesus had come looking for fruit on this nation, and there was no fruit, so he cursed it, and 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 it and it died. And as we're going to see more later on. Um, then in verse twenty-three, the 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 leaders of the, of the people, the religious leaders, asked him what question. By what authority? Yeah, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And what was his answer? I'll ask you a question. <laughs> by what authority, or or rather, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? <laughs> and these guys didn't have the moral courage to answer that question. That just showed who they were. And he says, well, I won't tell you then by what authority I do these things. But he did give them some parables. The first was a very simple parable. A guy had two sons. He gave both gave both of them the same directions. What was that? Go work in the vineyard today. And the first one said what? I will not. But what did he do? He changed his mind. He changed his mind. What did the second one do? He said, I will. What did he do? <laughs> Which one of those represents the spiritual leaders of the people? Yeah, that's right. They're the ones that said, oh, we're serving God. But they weren't. Then he had another parable in verse 33. A landowner planted a vineyard to put a wall around it and dug a wine press and all this. Now, in the Old Testament, what does this vineyard represent? It represents Israel. Yeah. So, then he he rented it out to some vine growers. Who do, who do those guys represent? Well, the vineyard represents the Jews. So the vine growers had to represent something else. The leaders. I think they represent the leaders, yes. Now, there's another sense which I would agree with, with Ralph. We could have them represent the whole, all the Jews. But I think Jesus is mostly talking in this parable to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And um, so they, they don't appreciate it when he wants the fruit from the vineyard beat up his slaves, kill some of them. So finally he sends who? His son. His son. And what do they do to his son? They kill him. So they, can, so they can own the vineyard. And of course, what's going to happen to them now? Verse 41. They'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And they'll run out the vineyard to other vine growers. And this, of course, is the prediction really of transferring the kingdom of God to the Gentiles because... Uh, the Jews, especially with their religious leaders, were, were being unfaithful. Then, one more on this same topic. Chapter 20 is the parable of the marriage feast. The king gave a wedding feast for his son. Of course, the king, we assume, represents God. The son represents Jesus. The wedding feast is something talked about in the book of Revelation. But he sent his slaves to call those that had been invited, and what was their attitude? Yeah. The Jews have been invited to this wedding feast for centuries. Jesus came to invite them, and they're too busy doing other things. So, finally, in verse 7, the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. I think that's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem to come. And then they still had to get people in, so 
They just went and got everybody in. And that was fine, except in verse 11, what did one of the guys make the mistake of doing that was invited? He wasn't wearing the wedding clothes. Yeah, he wasn't dressed properly to be at a wedding. So even though the king just invited anyone and everyone, he expected them to come dressing their best, and this guy apparently wasn't. Um, so then, that finishes his parables addressed to those Jewish leaders who wouldn't tell him where the baptism of John came from. Now, the, they decided to turn the tables and start trying to trap him. And their first trap was asking him what question? Yeah. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And that's, of course, when he gives the famous answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and what? To God are the things that are God's, yes. <laughs> they could, there's nothing they could do with that answer. Sashis then came with a challenge, because Sashis don't believe in what? The resurrection. So they propound a, a, some of their sure is going no one can, no one's been able to answer their question so far, you know. This woman's been married to seven men um, legally. And then in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Jesus straightens about on that. Then, one of those Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him what? What's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees love to argue about this. Jesus didn't hesitate. What was the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yeah. Which... The interesting thing about that one commandment is it includes all the other commandments. <laughs> and the, one, the other one, of course, like it, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then finally, Jesus turned around and asked them a question. And what was that question? Yeah. Now when He says, what do you think about the Christ? He's not talking about Himself. He's not saying, what do you think about Me? Just the Christ. You know, We don't know who He is yet, but whose son is He going to be? Son of David. And then he presents a problem. What did David say about the Messiah in the Psalms? Yeah, he calls him my Lord. Whoever calls their son my Lord. So Jesus says, well, how is that possible that he's the son of David and he calls him my Lord? (laughs) And they couldn't answer it. And he didn't tell them the answer. But if they had ever learned the answer, they wouldn't have put him to death. And so finally, we have a chapter where Jesus exposes the, the, the sins, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Um, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and laid them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Verse 5, they do all their deeds for what? To be noticed by men. Yeah. Jesus talked about that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount too. And verse 8, so he says, but do not you be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you're all brothers. And he goes on like that for a ways. Um, and then in verse 16, he talks about some of their legalistic reasoning. They, they had figured out how if you swear by the temple, you don't have to do it. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you do have to do it. And they had long evolved arguments is how that worked. And, and people do the same thing today with the New Testament, just like these Pharisees were doing with the Old Testament. But he just calls them fools and blind men. And basically said, if you swear by the temple, you're swearing by everything in the temple, including the gold. Um, 
In verse 23, you tithe what? Yeah, mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Both a gnat and a camel were unclean in the law of Moses. But it seems pretty foolish to strain out the gnat and then swallow it. In verse 25, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Um, and finally, he sums up in verse 34, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's a prediction of what? And that Jerusalem will be destroyed, yes. And the next chapter goes into the details, but that's next week. Any last questions? Appreciate everyone's participation.